Welcome to the Well SGV podcast. We exist to multiply followers of Jesus rooted in the gospel who worship, walk, and witness to God's glory. Here's our message for the week. Well, good morning. I have the privilege of speaking to you this morning about this really awesome passage that I, as I studied it and really realized how important it is and how we call it appropriate it is to speak about this passage to you guys. Before let me start with a word of prayer, let me pray. Father, we give you thanks again for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. We delight that we know that you are here and you are seeing us, watching us, blessing us, speaking us, speaking to us through your word, and that our, whole, our spirit that lives in us is slowly changing us and transforming us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, to be more like him in heart, in mind, in body, and spirit. We pray, Father God, that uh, our hearts will be open to the hearing of your word and the transformation that goes on because knowing Jesus is with us. So, Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for everybody that's here. Uh, may be blessed by the reading of his word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go to verse 4, and we know that Jesus is going to this place, uh, this place in Samaria. And I just came from a camp this past summer. It was on this very passage, this very chapter. And he kept on saying this, like, to some area. Where, where, where did he, where'd he go? Some area. Some area out there in, near Jerusalem, near Judea, Samaria. And he kept on repeating that joke over and over again. But I, but I wanted you to think, in verse 4, he says immediately, uh, he had to go to Samaria. And this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is the King of Kings. And no, who, who can tell the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords, where to go? Only the Father can do that. So he had to go. And why did he have to go? Because he was called by God to go there. Maybe in his prayer, during his time of devotion, whatever way that the Father spoke to his son Jesus, he told him to go. He had to go. So this, this, this meeting of the well, this, the Samaritan at the well, is, is not by chance or circumstance. It's because it's a divine appointment. Jesus went because the Father planned it that way to be. And I appreciate that. And so he had to go through Samaria. And we know that Samaria, and just a little background without going through the full details, Samaria was a bad place uh, historically. For 700 years before the time of Christ, 700 years before, uh, the Assyrians came into, into Jerusalem, Judea, and took the people captive, took all the best of the people, took them away, sent them back to Samaria, uh, to, to Assyria, and then he had them inbreed, and, and they, made, they made babies, apparently. It's like, I read a commentary of, a, of, a, of kind of how it looked like. Okay, the Samaritans were despised. It kind of looked like if you were kidnapped and you married your kidnapper and you had babies with your kidnapper. If you can imagine that, how, how ugh, that weird feeling that for some people who are as pious as the Jewish community, they were like, ugh, ugh, unclean, gross. And then the Syrians at the, at the time, they, they took these Jews who were at one time very Jewish, very pious, and then they were, they were told and taught and bred into believing in false gods, the false gods of these Mesopotamians who were violent and cruel, who would sacrifice babies, who if they were, and they were conquerors, and they would torture and kill and murder um, their captives. It's kind of interesting the things, you know, you rabbit, like as you're just doing research, you kind of rabbit things. And I found out 
that one of, one of the things that the Syrians gave to the world is this idea of the cross. Now, the cross wasn't kind of like this at one time. It was adapted by the Romans who looked at the Assyrians and how to intimidate the people of, of the land. That their cross was actually two pieces of wood that went side this way, and then they would hung their prisoners and they would line their roads uh, to their enemies, showing all the people that they crucified. That's how violent and awful at this time the Samaritans were, or the, uh, the Syrians were. And so now these are the children of, of the, Samar- the Syrians and the Jewish people kind of like interbreeding, and then they were allowed to go back to this place in Sychar in Samaria. So these, just imagine this, like they were so vile and half-breed, half-pagan, half-Jew, defilers of their word, defilers of, of you know, their, the way they, they worship God, pagan gods and things like that. And so, especially for the Jews, again, how pious they were, like, they would not do it. There's a, there's a, there's a map. Can we show the map real quick? Okay, so don't, don't look at the left one. Look at the right one. I don't know why I put both of them. But if you see here, uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem down here, and he wanted to go back up to Galilee, to Nazareth, right? And then they had to take a turn. Instead of going straight line, like normal, the, the greatest distance between two points is a straight line, and it would be just as easy to just go through Samaria, this little section, but they would go around it. They would have to pass the River Jordan, which is not the smallest river in the world. They have to pass through boats, the River Jordan, pass through the boats, walk around, tread, and pass the, the Jordan again to get to where they wanted to go. And this was common practice for the Jewish people. They avoided Samaria like the plague. They, they were like, you remember COVID? Do you remember COVID? The, the beginning parts of COVID, you were like walking down, you see people you would, you would turn to the side, you would, you would literally cross the street. I remember my wife did this a couple of times when we were traveling. We would see people, we would like, oh, there's people, and they're like, <coughs> I'm like, oh, no, no, no. We would literally cross the other side of the street, walk on, and we're like, and then, and then say goodbye. We, we didn't want to have any contact with them whatsoever in fear of them infecting us infecting them, us with their false beliefs, infecting us with their half-breed ideas. There was a lot of animosity between both of them. And so that's the kind of feelings that, that there's a lot of feelings going on in this passage of hatred and hostility of their people groups. But not for Jesus and not for the Samaritan woman. We see that there's a difference. So in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria Samaria. So he came down to Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that was given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. The reason why we have this particular passage, I try to look, what's the significance of that place? It's the capital of Samaria as well. But what's the significance of Joseph and Jacob in particular? Yes, it was was a place of her ancestors where, where we find out later that Jacob actually drank from this well. But the reason why the Bible is it's set here in the Bible in verse 5 is because Samaria and Sychar is an actual place, a real place. So is, so is just a, not only is it historical, but it's also geographical. Like you can go on a map, you can find out where this place is and say, that's the well, this is Sychar, right? So it's believable. When you read the Bible, I want you to know that when you read the Bible, that it's real. It's not some imaginary places, and it doesn't conflict with, with other parts of Scripture. It's an actual, it's a real place. 
and I don't want to like downplay any of the other faiths and other religions, but like other places, things that you read in the in, in for example the uh, the Book of Mormon, for example, just taking them for example, no 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 ills to the Mormons, but you they talk about things and places and times and they all don't match. It doesn't make sense. Where's this place? You say this is a place, but it doesn't appear anywhere on maps, things like that. So when we read the Bible, it's comforting to know that it's actually a place, that when I look at it, it's actually there. I can see it. Then if the places are real, then the event that's talking in the Bible, I can assume is real. So very comforting to know this is in verse 5. And in verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired. This is a great thing about when we were talking about the, this chock full of information just from this, this passage. We know about Jesus. That Jesus was tired as he's traveling, as he's walking, as he's, you know, and he's also talking. I don't know about you, but physical activity is, is one thing. And, and as, I, as I was younger, I, I, can, I can run all day, I can play basketball all day and do things like that. But I realized as I got older, the thing that gets me tired is talking to people. And, and many of you can think about, like, all the people you had to talk to, and you're like, oh, oh, man, I'm so tired. I need to take a nap. I talked to this person for about two hours, and I, I'm, I'm dead. I'm tired. My, my brain's shutting off. I can't think anymore. So not only did he see physically tired, he had to travel from Jerusalem all the way and traveling up to the Smith, to Sicker to be at the well, and he's long, he's traveling with his, his buddies. His disciples are probably not just being quiet. They're actually talking, interchanging. The people they're meeting, the people he's teaching, the people he's engaging, it's, he's tired. And the great thing I love about in verse 6 that Jesus was tired, just like Jesus wept, we find out in the Bible, Jesus wept, that he's human. He's fully human. He feels what we feel. He, he knows what we know. He does all these things about him tells me that he's, kind of, he's like me. The only thing that's different between him and I is, one, well, obviously, he's the son of God, and he didn't sin, but everything else he felt. I'm sure he, if, he carried, if he carried a backpack for miles and miles and miles, he'd he'll feel the pain on his, on his back and on his shoulders. If he had to walk through a lot of tough gravel, even though they're used to not wearing shoes, that he would have felt the many pebbles under his feet as he, got, as he grew tired. As he, as he talked, like I'm talking now, like, my mouth is really dry, that his mouth was really dry, as we'll see. So Jesus was as tired as he was from his journey, and he sat down leisurely by the well, and it was about noon. Now, this is an interesting time. Not only was it a divine appointment in the divine place at this well, but it was in a divine moment where Jesus sat at the proximal, I don't know how long he waited, and it's about noon, the hottest time of the day. Remember, where they lived is not, is not like trees and, water and, and grass everywhere. It's actually a, more of a deserty, kind of sandy kind of place. It was about noon. It was hot. You can imagine some of the points in time during this past summer where you felt hot and miserable because it was just so hot outside. You felt the, uh, the, burning, the burning from the sun. Jesus was there and felt it too. And for some divine reason, a woman walks out at this time. When the Samaritan woman came to draw the water, for one thing, it's a Samaritan woman. Why is, she, why is she here? Jesus, I don't know if he, Jesus was there, looking around. 
Okay? There's no other woman besides this woman. That's why they're able to have this intimate conversation by themselves. Because she was not supposed to be there. All the women in all the town, all the, the normal women, the normal women, were out, were in their homes. They either doing something, taking care of kids, or whatever the women were doing at the time. But they did their well, they did the well drawing of the water in the morning, in the cool of the afternoon. Does it make sense, right? I don't, I don't go, I don't drive west in the morning because that doesn't make sense to drive west on the 10 or the city freeway because there's a lot of traffic. I don't drive east in that direction in the, in the, in, at 6 p.m. because there's a lot of traffic. I won't go down to, Southern, to Orange County in the afternoon or near the dinner time because there's a lot of traffic. So we try to avoid, as you, as you can see, we try to avoid those things, those t- odd, odd times like everybody else. But for some reason, in the cloak of night, like Nicodemus in chapter 3, uh, and in the cloak of day, really bright, that she would go out by herself. There's something quirky. There's something weird about that. And we later find out, as you know, that she was a woman of scandal. Ooh, ooh, a woman of scandal. As we, and we'll look about later, that she was, an, she was, in terms of her own opinion, maybe of the opinion of the general people, thought of her, especially her, her thinking, I need to go out in secret because I am not welcomed, I am not appreciated, I am not liked by the people who would normally go during the time, like they draw water in the morning, so she doesn't go in during that time. Just like at Costco, I love going to Costco at 11 o'clock a.m. because there's people there, people in the morning, there's tons of people, people after work, tons of people. I like to go that that sweet spot of 11 o'clock a.m. or 2 in the afternoon when there's not the high time. So, same thing. So she she came at noon. And in verse 7, she came and draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And you can imagine the Samaritan woman who is knows that he's a Jew. She's like, who, me? She, Jesus speaks to her, can you give me a drink of water? Are you, are you talking to me? It's, it's not said there that she says those things, but you could imagine her, her kind of like, what? Why are you speaking to me? Why are you even talking to me? That's what she would be thinking. That's what she would be saying. And so she says, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy their food. So there was nobody else around. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. I don't know how she knows that. I don't know. Can you ever thought about that? The, the, this woman, she's trying, she's trying to do, mind her own business, trying to peel a, a water from the well. She goes, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How does she know that? I always wondered about that. Is it because the, the way he dressed, the way he looked, maybe the way he sounded like? There is a cultural difference. That There is something cultural there that can identify, this woman can identify. She doesn't have the, the understanding of God right there, like, oh, this is a Jew or whatever. She just inherently knew that he was a Jew. Maybe it was his clothes, maybe the way he talked. Very similar to, if you think about it, like, I can find out who, who, who lives in East L.A. Not in general, but I can know who lives in L- East L.A. I can know a person who lives in San Marino. I could live in Arcadia. I could know a difference between a person who lives in Kansas or Tennessee. There's things and cultural things that, they, that is apparent that's different about us. 
so that she can do, and she does as well. And then she says to me, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She builds a wall. There's a wall up there like, you're, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. There's a wall. She builds it right away. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. This was an understood thing. If, if people, besides the disciples, kind of walked, maybe pushed her aside, saw Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, <gasps> Rabbi, what are you doing? Rabbi, you're not supposed to talk to him. You would hear gasps. If, a bunch of, if this was in the middle or in the morning time of a different time, and they saw this happen, people would be like, what's going on? The Pharisees would love it. The Pharisees, if they were there, would see it, and they were like, that guy is unscrupulous. That guy is shady, by local terms. There's something, there's something wrong with that guy, and I can find out. Because this is, this is a no-no culturally for them, for a Samaritan woman. Not only is she a Samaritan woman, she's a woman. And men, like rabbis, teachers of the law, do not even associate with them. Don't talk. They would... There's a thing, an article I read about, about priests, rabbis, spiritual leaders, that they were called the bruised, the bruised preachers, the bruised men, the bruised, the bruised teachers. It's because when they, they were so pious in their faith, in, in their Jewish faith, that they, every time they saw a woman, they would close their eyes and keep walking away and run in things, fall on things. It's because you should not look at a woman outside the privacy of your own home. You're not supposed to, in public, you're not supposed to do it. So they would like, they would be walking, see what, like this, and they would trip over somebody or knock over somebody, things like that. It's because that's how pious and serious this cultural thing is. He says to me in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, who is it that you asked for a drink? You would ask him and he would be given you living water. Jesus asked her if he knew the gift of God. So he asks her a question, a series of questions, or kind of entices her, draws her into this conversation. Well, I got some water. You're looking for water? I got some water. Hmm. She's kind of like, oh, all right, tell me more. She draws her in, this idea of living water. And it's, again, it's not a, a phrase that was uncommon. It was actually a phrase that ancient times people thought living water is some, a special kind of water. And he said, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw from. You have nothing to draw with. And the, the well is deep. How are you supposed to get it? Where can you get this living water, she asks. She's curious. She's interested. Are you greater than, than our father Jacob? Again, she has, even though she's a Samaritan woman, she has Jewish backgrounds as well. She's a half-breed. So she's part Jewish still and part pagan. And so she associates her, her lineage to the father Jacob, even though she's a Samaritan, who gave us this well and drank from himself, as did his sons and livestock. In verse 13, she said, he answered, whoever drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks the water... I give. Now he's, now he's drawing association to himself. The water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water. Just imagine the, the imagery of saying, if I give you water, you'll, be, you'll have all the water that you ever want, like a magic. Well, now, I'm, now I'm, 
Now, the Samaritan woman, oh, I want this water. This sounds like a great, this sounds great for me. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't thirsty and I, will, and I have to keep coming here and drawing water. So she's thinking of this spiritual, this, this physical water that she can get over and over again, this abundance of water, a water that will, give, will bless her, a water that will, will have her be in hiding. She doesn't have to come out here and be exposed in the hot, hot sun. She doesn't have to go in the morning with all the other women. <sighs> this would be great. So she said, give me the water. And then for some reason, he changes the conversation. Okay, we're talking about water. We're talking about water. Sometimes we, we do this in conversation where we change subjects and we don't know why. In verse 15, he says, the woman said to him, Sir, oh, sorry, in verse 16, he told, he told her in response to, give me this water, Jesus, give me this water, Jesus. He goes, go, get your, go call your husband and come back. What? Why do you need my, why, what, we're just talking about water, what happened? Why are we talking about my husband now? Well, I don't really have a husband. Why, do, why are you talking about husband now? And then so he's interested. This, this person is some sort of special. Jesus is something special. And she's trying to like confide in him. And then he says, go and fetch me your husband. Go call your husband to come back. She changes her attitude. She changes her feeling. I don't know if, if you read it. Because I have no husband. I once thought you, ha- you were onto something. You, ha- you hooked me. You grasped me with this living water thing. But you're no, no special than a normal person. Because you would know if you were something special, like a f- prophet, you would know that I have no husband. So, yeah, you're just a normal person. You're just a normal guy. But instead, he says, she says, I have no husband. I thought you were something special, but you, you're not. Then Jesus said to her, you're right. You, have, you say you have no husband. You're right. Confronts her. Says, the fact is, you have five husbands. You've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. So she's living with somebody. What you just said is quite true. <laughs> how, did, how did you know? And her shame and her guilt, her feeling of the thing that she's trying to hide, the thing, the reason why she's drawing water at noon came out. The secret that she has, this, maybe not even a secret to a lot of people, but this, this part of her life that she doesn't want to talk about, that she doesn't want anybody to know, comes out in full view. And she's like, it's like, think about your, your, your worst sin that you've ever committed, your deepest, darkest sin that you don't want to tell anybody, not your spouse, not anybody, you don't want to talk about it. And that another person knows it. Your secret is out. And how you might have felt knowing that somebody is like, knows your secret. Two things. Either you were like, wow, how did you know? Or, oh no, don't tell anybody, please. What you said is true. And so she's, she's found who she is, the thing that she struggles the most, the thing that has bonded her, the sin that she's committed over and over again is out. The thing that holds her to her shame is out there. Verse 19, she kind of like, you know, this lady talks quite a bit for somebody who's a Samaritan who's kind of isolated, who doesn't, who wants to be in hiding, kind of talks a lot to Jesus. And that's maybe something about Jesus himself, that he brings out this conversation that she wants to talk to him. Verse 19, it says, Sir, the woman you said, 
I can see that you are a prophet. Our, cest- our ancestors worship on this mountain, and the Jews claim that this is a place where you worship. Okay, there's a, she brings out her, a wall again. I see that you're a prophet. Okay, now you, you, are, you weren't just some lame old guy that kind of talked to me. Now you're a prophet, so I know you're kind of special. But she builds up another wall. Here's another wall. Okay, you know, you, you guys worship people in Jerusalem, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this mountain. So there's a wall that she sets up again. Woman, <laughs> he says, I'm like, I don't know if that's kind of insulting by these standards. In verse 21 it says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or Jerusalem. Meaning, the wall that you're trying to build up, there is no wall. There's no wall. God is God, and He will receive our worship regardless of where I am, where we are. Not your mountain, not Jerusalem. There should be no wall. He alleviates this tension of this wall. You worship on you, on your mountain, we worship in Jerusalem. Nope. We worship God wherever we are. Verse 22, he says, You Samaritans worship where you do not know, because they're, they're Samaritan worship. So he kind of educates her in a little bit and says, Your Samaritan worship is infused with, with the Jews. This correct word, vision of, of who God is, and you're mixing it with these pagan gods who believe in other things, and you kind of like, you don't really know who God is. You kind of know who He is, but you don't. So he lets her know. And we worship what we do know for this Faustian is for the Jews. So they, they're on the right track. But we find out later, it's Jesus who it is. In verse 22, you Samaritans worship that you do not know. Okay. In verse 23, he explains himself, yet the time is coming and has come now because of Jesus when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks not bound by cultures, not bound by traditions, not bound by cultural animosities, but bound by God, the focus, the reason why they believe. It's not bound by these other things. It's bound by true worship, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God himself. And the time is now because Jesus is there. This is the time when Jesus, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Son, is present, and he calls himself, this is me, the giver of living water. God is spirit, and the worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. There's a lot to be unpacked there, and I don't want, it would not give us justice if I went through all of it, and I'm sure we will at another time. But in verse 25, he says, I know that Messiah. She, she, she knows it. She has history. She's gone, she's gone to some school. She knows that that's the Messiah you're talking about. He called the Christ, right? He's coming. Again, that's what the Jews believe even today. He's coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us, just like he just did. And then Jesus declared, I, the one who's speaking to you, am he. The Messiah that you've been waiting for, the Messiah that you're looking for, the Messiah that you think he's coming is here right before your eyes. And so now she reflects about, like, what were we talking about? What were we talking about? Spirit? The living water? We're talking about living water? That he's not thirst more? Is he talking about himself? It's coming into, coming to, it's coming to life. She's starting to make sense here. It's starting to make, coming to sense. Not maybe fully, but it's making sense. 
It's impacting her life, and he's, willing, and he's willing to give it to her, this living water, knowing how sinful she is, knowing what her past is, still willing to give it to her. He's a prophet. He knows her. We read him to 26, right? And then that's end, but there's more. And let me read it to you so that it can finish the story. In verse, in verse 27, it says, when his disciples returned and were very surprised, well, it doesn't say very, were surprised to find him talking to women. Whoa, 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 Jesus. But no one asked, what do you want or why you were talking to her? Verse 28, then leaving her with a jar, the woman went back, gave her the jar, went back into town and said to the people, so she started telling people, come, and, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. He knows my secret. He knows my past. He knows who I He knows who I am. I didn't have to hide, and he knows and still talk to me. Could this have to be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Her testimony brought them out. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something, because he's tired. He probably looked all gaunt and he could look tired and thirsty, his parched lips. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Don't worry about it. I, I, have, I have what I need. My food, Jesus said, is to, do the will, is to do the will for him. He sent me to finish his work. So don't worry, I got the food. Let's move on down to 39. And he says, many of the Samaritans from the town believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and stay for two days. And because of his words, after this teaching for those two days, more became believers. And they said to the woman, these are the people he shared, these are Samaritan people. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world, this Jesus. So it kind of painted the picture. And basically what this whole, this whole chapter right here is painting a picture of what, 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 what went on. We see how the Samaritan's perception of Jesus changes. She first sees Jesus as a Jew. And then a prophet who sees revelations and sees truths that others cannot. You can see here a change like, oh, he's a Jew, separated Oh, but he's telling me something. Oh, he's telling me something that I didn't know. He, he, how did he know? Okay, he's, he must be a prophet. And then a Messiah, a Savior, an anointed one that was prophesied from her understanding of Scripture, which she does. She is stunned. She is amazed that he's willing to not only associate with her, talk with her, have a chat with her, answer her questions, speak to her, even, even the slightest he knows about her relationship history and still talks to her. Because he didn't, he didn't all of a sudden know that she had a husband. He, he was there knowing that already. Eventually she realizes he's no ordinary guy. He's special. The Samaritan woman is deeply impacted and moved by her conversation with Jesus and is eagerly, eagerly wants to share after she leaves, she decides, hey, guys, there's this guy over there. I just left. 
And, and in, through her excitement, she leaves her jar, leaves the, what she was there, and tells the people her testimony. She leaves, and the people are moved. Her testimony was powerful among her people because it came from a fellow Samaritan. Imagine, because Jesus was the disciples, and they're all Jews, Jewish people. And what if the Jews came out and said to the Samaritans, uh, you're a Jew, why are you talking to me? And this whole cycle would have came again. Don't talk to me. You're, we're Samaritans, you're Jews. But having a greater impact than that of the disciples, if they'd said the same thing, if, if the disciples ran across and told them about Jesus, would they, have, would they have listened? Would they have learned? Would they have come? Maybe, maybe not. Jesus tells us the Samaritans, John, the book, writer of the book, John tells us that many Samaritans believed because of her testimony, and they came to, to Jesus and asked him to stay with them in town, to have more of these conversations. Come and see invited them, hear more about Jesus, hear about more of what he has to say. I love this because this tells me several things that I want us to leave us with today. To work of, through the work of Jesus and his actions on that day, salvation was, we learned that salvation is not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. Now, now, we go back to the Samaritans again, is that from a Jewish perspective, this Samaritans are disgusting. They're despised. I don't want anything to do with them. And not only is this person despised as Samaritans, but this is a woman I shouldn't be speaking to. Not only is a woman, she's even another outcast. So outcast, another outcast because she's a woman, because they're think of, thought of lowly at the time, lower, She's also a, a person of repute, of, of reputation, of bad reputation. And so she's even an outcast amongst her own outcasted people. And yet God, in his divine appointment, assigned that moment at noon, at that place, to speak to this woman. I know that no matter what, in Romans 5.8 it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While, she was still, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This understanding of, I don't care where your past is. I don't care, if, but if you're seeking Christ, I want you to come. I want you to know Jesus. Despite your history, despite your past, I believe in a God who can transform and change lives from, from the worst and the vilest people. I actually been to a prison before, and prison mystery is scary. It's really scary. The first time I went to prison mystery, I was, I was shaking in my boots. But to see God transform these hardened criminals, people on death row, people who are life imprisonment, give themselves to Jesus and change their whole life around because of it. In prison, it's not like they accepted Jesus and they came out. They accepted Jesus, they're still in because they believe in the hope of Christ for them for eternity, that this is only a fraction of their life, this 60 years, 70 years in prison. It's only a fraction of life versus the eternity that God promises them. And they give their hearts to them, to Jesus. Because, now, I don't be, make, be offended to anybody, but we stink, we suck. We're sinful people. Jesus knows that and loves us still the same. 
that he would give his son Jesus to die for us. Wow, what a powerful message that is. In Acts 1.8, you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes to us, uh, will come to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We hear this passage constantly talking about to, to make us go out into the mission field, to go out and to reach other people. And look at what the, the words that he chooses in the book of Acts, Luke chooses. He says, Jerusalem, their hometown, their neighborhood, Judea, the outskirts, kind of the area, but Samaria, he chooses to put that in there too, where you should not go in this culture, in this time. Don't go to Samaria. It's a bad place. It's people where pagans are there. You're going to get influenced. You're going to get defiled. You're going to get, you know, unclean if you go there. But, but Jesus calls and says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my eyewitnesses. You will be a testimony of my goodness. You'll be testimony of the gospel message to Samaria where people don't want to go. He doesn't want us to take that detour anymore. He wants us to go there through it and reach those people. He breaks that cultural bounds. He breaks those things where it says, oh, well, we can't do this because they're this. We can't do this because we're this. We can't do this because of this. Whatever wall that we try to put up to make ourselves to give an excuse not to go to these people, he breaks this here. He chooses the outcast of outcasts and touches her life with his. Second thing, Jesus leaves the 99 and pursues the one. Jesus practices what he preaches in Matthew 18, 12, and Luke 15, 4, 7. If, if a man has 100 sheep, he had more than that, and one of them gets lost, like the Samaritan woman, what did he do? Won't he leave the 99 as the disciples left him? He didn't, he was like, oh, okay. That he won't leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Wow. His, his disciples, essentially, they're not the 99. They're not 99, but they're 12. But I'm sure there's more people following him, and they were gone. It was just him and the woman. He leaves the 99 and pursues. Oh, this is such a beautiful story. That he pursues after the one. He pursues after the lost. He pursues them. He comes out of his comfort zone. He could have been easily surrounded by people who love him, adore him. Oh, you're a good teacher. But no, he goes to another person and he says, hey, can I give you some water? Simple question. Can you give me some water? Starts the conversation. He pursues us, just like he pursues the, the Samaritan woman. Do you know how come I know? I know this is true. Do you know how come I know? Because you're sitting here right now. Somebody, God sent somebody, either he spoke to you himself in a dream or a vision and through scripture that you read and brought you to church, or somebody in your life brought you to church, whether it's your mom or your dad, it's your siblings, your cousins, whoever, your friends, your best friend, school friend, invited you to a retreat, invited you to a camp, invited to you a message, fellowship, home group, whatever it was. God pursued you through somebody. And I still believe that God wants this, this action, God wants you to continue to do. He wants you to be a pursuant. Pursue after the lost, pursue after the, the people who have stranded and lost their way, who have never heard of the word of, God, of Jesus. He wants you to pursue them. Because I, I was pursued by him. 
I am pursued by Christ a long time ago. God put several people in my life to teach me about God, who, who picked me up from my home, who picked me up from school, who brought me to church every week. Not my family, not my mom and dad, but somebody else. And so God continues to call you guys, call us to pursue for Him. He pursues. He wants to find. He wants to catch you. He wants you. He wants your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So he pursues. And lastly, the question that I have is in the story of the Samaritan, normally when we think, hear about Jesus's, Jesus's exploits, we take Jesus as the example which we follow, which is true for here too. But many times in the story, we immediately go to Jesus. Okay, I need to be more like Jesus. I need to pursue. I need to be teaching. I need to be uh, breaking down walls. Yeah, absolutely true. But the reason why is because instead of me being Jesus in the story, who are you in the story? We're all Samaritans. Isn't that the crazy part about this? We are, I am the Samaritan. I am the cast. I am the sinful person. I am the one who was lost. I am the person who, who has deep, dark secrets and sins in my life that need to be forgiven. And he's the one who pursues after me. I am the Samaritan. And I don't, he doesn't care about my background. He doesn't care where I was. He doesn't care where my parents were. He doesn't care what I did in history. I could have been the worst vile person in the world, yet he still pursues me because Jesus knows that he can forgive and save and transform people regardless of who I am or what I was. But he knows who I'm made to be. He knows who we made. And that's why I'm here. That's why you're here. By the same token, we need to be Jesus too. We need to be looking for the lost. We need to pursue. And that's why we're here at the well. We are a disciple-making, disciple-making church. We are a church that makes more churches. We are people who, who multiply and look for the lost. We try to bring them in. Not only do we try to bring them in, we try to go out. That's who we are as a well. This is a, this is a church because we're called the well because of this one story. We don't see, we don't, I hate that colorblindness. Oh yeah, we're supposed to be colorblind because we're Christian. No. We see the colors and we accept them because of their color, because of the differences. It's not like I see, that makes us unique. That makes us individual. And so when I see the differences, I say, amen. Do you know Jesus? Come in. But you say, Drek, I know what you're saying. We need to be more like Jesus. We need to go out. We need, we need to tell about, we need to talk to you, bring people into the church, invite them in, things like that. How, where, do, where do we start, Rick? Where do we start? Start like this woman started. She heard about Jesus. She, 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 was ex, she experienced, she testified, she eyewitnessed this exchange. And then she told other people. You have a testimony. If you're here and you're a believer, if you're not, that's fine. But if you're here as a believer and you've been a believer for quite some time, if not just even shortly, but you've been changed and transformed because of the gospel message that entered your life, you were once lost, you're a sinner, you're a sinner and because of Christ died on the cross, you were now saved, then that testimony alone gives you all that you need to go out there into your schools, into your workplaces, into your family events, and tell them about Jesus Christ. 
You have what it takes. And that's all you need. And I'll, I'll leave you with one more story. And I'll, I'll be done. Luke 10, 25, 37. And this is another Samaritan story. This is about the good Samaritan. As we read in Luke 10, 25 to 37. And this is a parable. And he speaks a parable because it's a lesson that Jesus wants us to know. Jesus, it's a lesson that Jesus wants us to learn. And he says, on one occasion, an expert, expert of the law, Pharisee or whatnot, stood up and to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Apparently, that's something that people want. I want eternal life. I will live forever. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? Well, he answered, you can quiz me, Jesus. I, I, can, I can take it. Love the, Lord with all your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Throw in the second word. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Probably arrogantly. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Picture that. He's naked. That's, I mean, not only was he beaten is the, is, the, is the sad part, but he's naked, and they beat him, and then he's, he's half dead. He's not alive. He's laying on the road. A priest happened to be going by down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. This is what we just talked about. He passed, he went around. This is, this is, this is, this is what he's used to. Samaritans are used to this, being side-railed, side right? So he passed him on the other side. In verse 32, so too a Levite, who is also a part of the priesthood, when he came to a place and saw him, passed again on the other side, but a Samaritan. And Jesus, again, uses what we talked about, the Samaritans, these people that know ugh, Samaritans, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He took pity on him and went to him and bandages. He physically bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He didn't say, hey, can someone help me here? This guy needs help. This guy needs help. But he got his hands dirty. He actually physically helped him. And then he put a man on his own, do his own donkey. Put a man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them uh, to the innkeeper, look after him, and said, and when I return, I will re reimburse you for any extra expenses that he may have. Jesus then says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to this man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law. It's eating him. <laughs> this, this answer is eating him inside. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus clearly says, who is the, who is the person? The Samaritan, right? That's the Samaritan. The answer is the Samaritan. The answer is the Samaritan who had neighbor, who has had mercy, who showed compassion. <laughs> The one who had mercy on him. You can feel it because he didn't want to say it. He didn't want to say the Samaritan man had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do what the Samaritan did. Oh, the teacher of the law, that, that teacher of the law must have been like, you want me to be like a Samaritan person? 
Those are evil people. I hate them. In the Talmud, the Jewish scriptures, it actually says, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. But in the story of the good Samaritan, the woman of the well, and in this story, Jesus breaks that understanding that the Samaritan woman is loved just like you're loved. Just like when we, when, when we go out and we go into our neighbors and we go into our schools and we go into our workplaces, you need to see that Jesus loves this person. No matter how he looks, no matter how he, how he presents himself, no matter his background, his history, his culture, his anything, God loves this person and, changes, and he'll change your viewpoint of how you see people from this point on. Read this passage again. How should you look at people? Who needs the gospel? Who needs Jesus? Who is made in the image of God? Who has value? Who are we to love? And no matter who this person I'm talking to, that is it. It doesn't matter who this person is. It's a great passage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for today. Thank you for helping us change the way I th- we think about salvation. Who deserves, who deserves Christ? Who doesn't deserve Christ? Who needs Christ? Who doesn't need Christ? Everybody does. Everybody needs you. So I pray, Father God, that you would instill in us this Christ-like attitude who pursues after the lost who pursues after the brokenhearted, who pursues after the weak and the helpless, who pursues after people who are different from us. I pray, Father God, that this would be one of the hearts of this church, that we would see the wonderful differences, but we would accept it wholeheartedly because you are, they are made in your image, because they are loved by you. Help us, Lord, know who we are, know what you've done for us as we are Samaritans who are undeserving of your grace, undeserving of your mercy, undeserving of your love, yet you still give it, and you showed it on the cross. So, Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be part of this church, to be part of your church, the well, and every Christian who's here that you would send us into the lot, to, to the Samarias of the world until you come again and that we can say, we have done your work, good and faithful servant, that you can say that to us. So Father, we thank you again for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We would love to hear from you and help you take one step closer to Jesus. To contact us or for more information, please go to www.thewellsgv.org.